Welcome to the Criterion Chat, a podcast on films from the Criterion Collection. I'm Matt Peterson, joined by Nate Myers. Tonight's episode centers on Paul Schrader's 1985 biopic, Mishima, A Life in Four Chapters, which examines a life and dramatic death of one of Japan's most celebrated and controversial authors. By no means a conventional biographical narrative, echoing its subject's obsession with reconciling art with life, written with a splash of blood. As the title suggests, the film is presented in four parts, beauty, art, action, and harmony of pen and sword. Within these segments are seemingly disparate elements, including a paramilitary operation led by Mishima and a group of young idealistic followers, black and white flashbacks, and highly stylized dramatizations of his written works, presented in stage play format with brilliant, sometimes garish set design by production designer Ieko Ishioka. Ken Ogata plays the title role with authority, conveying the complexity of the man, and doesn't shy away from Mishima's ego, sexuality, and ambition to transcend the physical and find idealistic immortality. Banned in Japan, Mishima comes to the Criterion Collection with a lavish two-disc DVD edition, adorned in gold foil. Join Nate and me as we discuss what is arguably Paul Schrader's best directorial effort to date. So first a disclaimer, uh, I'm recording this with different audio equipment this time around, so hopefully the uh, the quality is not uh, too poor. So uh, our five listeners will have to forgive me if there's any variation there. But uh, uh, Nate, I, I guess I'll just start with how we usually start. Uh, what are your first impressions of Mishima? I have not heard of this movie actually really up until very recently and never had really struck me as being one that I had any particular strong motive. Oh, I better go and see that probably because in all honesty, I'm not overly impressed with Paul Schrader as a director, but nonetheless, I think I do think there's a, a lot here. Um, not sure that I'm completely sold on the movie, but, uh, or at least I'm not sold on the reputation the movie has, uh, but I did think it was a good movie, and I do think that it's one that I could see myself coming back to on repeated viewings and liking more. That being said, uh, I always have a little bit of a lack of interest, I suppose, in movies about artists. Uh, there's something a little, call it narcissistic, and this movie definitely is dealing with narcissism, uh, but there's even just the, the exercise itself on Schrader's part is a kind of narcissism in his work here as well. Uh, that is just something I never really quite resonate with in a positive way. But certainly a, a triumph of, in, in terms of form, whether that's the writing, the set design, uh, the narrative structure, uh, it's all very well executed. But as far as a movie that I found uh, particularly emotionally compelling, not so much. So you find that uh, films on artists in general just don't work for you very well, or I not a ton. I I just it's not one that I always find particularly interesting. Art about artists, it's it's never something I've really found all that particularly enjoyable. It's it's the same thing with like journalists that are hailing journalists. 
I just don't really get excited about that either. When it's everybody's kind of looking at their own group and being, hey, let's let's study ourselves. I find it a little just uninteresting in general. But that being said, I do think that there are ways in which certainly this works not so much as a evaluation of an artist, but an evaluation of, uh, shall we say, an ideology. As a matter of fact, as I was watching it, I kind of thought, boy, I'm glad I'm watching it now because it seems perhaps more relevant and more interesting in the era of Donald Trump and the celebrity politician than perhaps it would have to me 10 years ago even, and certainly when it came out in 1985. I think that it has uh, that, that idea of narcissism is an interesting concept uh, to study, but the movie itself is also, I think, culpable for narcissism. I think the film does a pretty good job at subverting uh, a lot of those problems when it comes to biopics, especially biopics about artists, yeah, because the film does focus so heavily on the trappings of narcissism. Um, I guess that's one thing I really respect about the film is uh, the fact that it doesn't seem to glorify the individual of Mishima. It seems to be interested in in presenting him as he was, or at least as Paul Schrader sees him. Uh, he's a very controversial figure even to this day in Japan. And and again, the, the film has never been screened in Japan, as far as I know, uh, theatrically. So it's, uh, I think Mishima is seen in Japan as kind of this anomaly where they don't quite know what to do with him. You know, they see him as a respected author and, and he had great accomplishments there. Uh, but there were some very controversial elements uh, with him. And of course, uh, the attempted coup and his, his suicide is something they probably want to forget. Uh, but it's, yeah, it's it's a complicated film about a complicated man, and and I I think the film structure uh, echoes that, and I, I really admire Paul Schrader for doing something very ambitious here. You know, I I I don't love the film, but I I do think it's very very strong, and and as you said with repeat viewings, I think I would grow to like it even more. Uh. Well, let's just kind of dive into the different sections of the film and and kind of the different visual styles. I figure we could kind of proceed in chronological order through the film and and uh, further discuss our impressions kind of of each segment. So the first segment being beauty, and every segment has uh, similar elements in that uh, it, it partially depicts events from the last day of Mishima's life when... Uh, he and his S.H.I.E.L.D. Society followers were uh, staging this coup. And, and one could say, well, did Mishima ever think this coup would actually work? Or is this just a mechanism for him to have a glorious death at, at what he saw as his prime? Probably more the latter. Uh, and this film, again, is very much about ego uh, in many ways. So uh, we kind of have that component uh, in each of the segments. Uh, and then the black and white flashbacks were introduced in the, to, uh, in the first segment as well. And, and these show, uh, in the first segment in particular events from his childhood. And, um, I'm trying to remember if it was in the first segment, it probably was, uh, the fact that he was, uh, discharged or, um, wasn't allowed to serve in the military in World War II. And I think that's a, pretty watershed moment in his life and it made him feel 
inadequate in many ways uh, and possibly led to some level of overcompensation in terms of uh, his more right-wing uh, inclinations later in life. But uh, we see these early events, and they're very instrumental to his life. But we also get the first depiction of uh, one of his literary works, in this case, uh, the novel The um, Temple of the Golden Pavilion. So I, I guess I'll stop there and throw it back to you, Nate. I mean, first impressions on kind of the first segment of the film and and we can also speak to uh, the different segments and the different visual styles within the first segment of the film. So it's a highly compartmentalized film. There's a lot to unpack here. Definitely, it's compartmentalized. That's a good word for it. I thought the first parts of the film were pretty weak, to be honest. Uh, so the, the, the section that would be beauty, right? the Temple of the Golden Pavilion, is the novel that is being depicted and then the flashbacks to him as a child, and then his attempts at uh, joining the military for World War II, and then uh, as well as uh, the uh, initial introduction to November 25th, 1970, the, the famed day or infamous day in which uh, Yukio Mushima, uh, wish, uh, with a three or four men, I can't remember, historically I think it's, I think it's only three, but in the movie, if I'm not mistaken, they have four people with them. Uh, maybe I got that wrong, but uh, he uh, obviously tries to have the coup that particular day. And I think what I liked about the film, and this is throughout the whole film, they succeed at this, is they do a very nice job of giving you a bearing as an audience member as to what you're seeing. So you have this the events of November 25th, 1970 being shot in a very naturalistic, realistic style. The color palettes look normal. The uh, the uh, compositions are very straightforward. There's nothing particularly flashy about it. Uh, very plain. And then you have the flashbacks, which are being shot in black and white, and uh, obviously a, a, a motif that becomes very common. I don't think it really had been done that much prior to this, but certainly become much more pro- common after uh, Mishima was released. And that, I think, was very nicely done. It gave you that sense of, okay, I know I have a flashback. This is telling me about something about Mishima's early life. And then you have the highly rich, saturated colors that are taking place in the realm of his novel, right? The, the depiction of a portion of his novel. Uh, it certainly is one where I think part of it, now having seen the whole movie, if I went back and watched that first hour, I might like it more. I might maybe have more of an appreciation of what was going on in it. But my initial impression was that I thought it was just a little too esoteric, that there wasn't a real clear understanding of thematic purpose to it. Now, that's not always a bad thing. You don't need to reveal all your hands, uh, your cards in your hand right off the bat. But nonetheless, it did strike me as being overly complex and its initial setup, perhaps a little bit more of a of us uh, straining out the, the the setting of Mishima himself uh, as just a man, as opposed to the layers of his uh, fictional work and everything in that first hour would have been a little more effective. Well, I think the film is challenging and it's kind of meant to be that way. Uh, I think, uh, again, Schrader's just trying to do a lot here and maybe it gets a bit muddled. Uh, but I kind of see that first segment as, you know, culminating in, the destruction of the Golden Pavilion, right, which is a very famous temple in Kyoto. Uh, and that kind of indicates in Mishima's life 
the idea that you know beauty needs to be stopped or captured at its uh, at its highest point, you know, at its apex, and that certainly spills into later chapters of his life, culminating with a suicide. So he, I think, had a real fear of of decay and death, and that was certainly manifested in in the choices he made, uh, and that is ultimately kind of the thrust of that first section of the film, I think. Uh, but the the visuals are just yeah like you said the um the november segments are kind of shot in very naturalistic almost documentary style and then we have the black and white flashbacks which may seem cliched now in terms of the stylistic choice there but i think that works quite well and what was interesting too is in in the supplemental material on the the dvd and the documentary the cinematographer john bailey said that they actually went back and looked at Japanese films from the eras that were being depicted in Mishima and attempted to emulate the lighting styles of those black and white segments based on those Japanese black and white films. And I don't know if that quite translates uh, that effort, but it's admirable that they actually went to those lengths to, to try to create a unique visual style. And also, you know, this is the first time we see, of course, the depiction of one of the novels. So the uh, Temple of the Golden Pavilion, we have those beautiful, just gold adorned, what look like stage sets, essentially. And uh, I thought this would be kind of an interesting topic to discuss, too, just the idea of using um, kind of a, a filmed stage play as an element in cinema. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, Nate? Do you think that's uh, something that's inherently not cinematic, or uh, is it too distracting? Uh, so we can talk about in, in terms of how it works in this film or how you feel about it in general. In general, I have no problem with it. I think overall you can depict cinema in a variety of ways. That's one of the, the joys of cinema that you can play around with things and you can incorporate stage work as well as you can go on location. You can have it be highly stylized or low style. You, you have a wide range of how you can create a film. And I don't know that there's a universal way in which every movie should be done. Right. This particular film, though, looking at those stage, uh, I shot on Toho. Uh, I think it was Toho, uh, studios. Was it not? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was entirely the, shot in Tokyo. Yeah, so they had that particular uh, very – this is, I guess, maybe my point of it being sort of an exercise in narcissism uh, because I see a lot of attention on Schrader's part as a director being put into artifice. And look at me as a director. I'm being so creative and I'm being so over the top in my style here, and it's a celebration of my visual instincts – and I found that to be rather uh, rather than drawing me into the psyche of Mishima, it actually wound up distracting me from the character and the characterization they were going for because I started paying too close attention to the color design and paying too close attention to the form of the image. And so it's one of those things where I guess some people don't mind having the form 
in terms of the editing, cinematography, production design, whatever, be the main emphasis. There are times where that's fun. But if you're really trying to get into telling me something of a character, particularly a historical character, I like it when a film really draws those elements back or not that I don't think you need to pay attention to them, but you just you have them at the service of the character. This I felt almost like the character was at the service of them. It's partly the theme, I will admit, but it's less interesting to me at that point. I guess I didn't feel that way. I mean, I see your point that there are moments where the choices here can become distracting, and and certainly the theatrical segments are gonna. I mean, you could argue that they're going to take you out of the film, right? Because it's it's the artifice is so front and center, and and it's very much about well, look at this creative art or set designer, this creative production design. Um, for me, it worked in this film. I I don't know. I, I just felt like I guess I appreciated the creativity and I appreciated how the film was trying to do something different, think outside the box, because I I think that reflects what Yuki Mishima was trying to do with a lot of his own work. So I think there is a relationship there between uh, the film's style and, and, and its subject. But yeah, it can certainly be distracting. Um, but I, I guess for me, it, it, it worked pretty well. Uh, it's but... an interesting blending, I think, of Eastern and Western sensibilities. Yeah, The film, obviously, the, the, the setting the main character, the true story, right? And a great amount of the, uh, obviously the cast isn't exclusively uh, Japanese, but production crew as well, having a, have a Japanese contingent, uh, but all under the direction of an American, right? So a very Western voice in that. And I do think it's kind of neat how that does come together because there is an element to which Japanese theater and Mishima himself having written some 200 plays uh, certainly would be very stylized, right? I mean, it, it's not the kind of play that would have been happening on, on you know, off-Broadway. So it uh, certainly is taking certain elements of uh, traditional Japanese art, artistry, at least as we Americans like to think of it, and blending that with a Western voice, uh, which does have it at, its, um, at different moments. It has a certain kind of vibrancy that emerges i'm thinking in particular if we're looking at that first uh section uh the way in which it unapologetically examines the sexuality of mishima uh the the uncomfortableness of him as a young man uh and he's looking at the uh, picture of saint sebastian and uh is aroused by it right and so to see these elements that are not something that i think a, a japanese particularly with Mishima himself as the subject, a Japanese artist would have really been willing to delve into at that time, but Americans much more willing to do, right? So there's this bouncing around of ideas. Uh, you have the naturalistic elements that really were very much felt like an American production. And then you have these element elements that felt very much like a Japanese production. It was an interesting way in which those two came together. Yeah, and the, the way this film was made, I mean, kind of going off of what you said, uh, they had a real challenge, uh, not only just in terms of how they were going to make this film, but uh, just making it in Japan. I, I guess I was surprised that Toho 
even let them make this film there because it seemed like a very controversial subject. And I think from uh, kind of my research into the film and the, the supplemental material, it seems they, they were just confused as to why an American would be interested in making a film on, on Mishima because he's just, uh, they almost assumed that they were going to be making fun of him or or ridiculing him in some way. Uh, where whereas the film, yeah, I think is quite the contrary to that. Uh, but at the same time, those elements that I think the Japanese maybe were afraid of, Paul Schrader doesn't shy away from. So his sexuality or or, or you know suggestions of homosexuality in, in the film, I think were the main reasons why the film was banned in Japan. Uh, and even beyond that. I think they see Mishima as a source of embarrassment to a degree. I, I mean, I could be wrong about that, but the fact that he took this very extreme nationalistic right-wing sort of stance and wanted to bring back the glory of the emperor and, uh, and then committed suicide at the end, I think there's a lot of conflicting emotions there for, for Japanese, right? So you have this this sense of uh, of honor certainly and in, in the the Bushido code that that Mishima uh, aspired to to live by and these are th- uh, elements that are still important in Japanese society but at the same time uh, they are a source of shame certainly in the context of World War II and and Imperial Japan and there are still very strong right-wing national movements in Japan to this day I mean, uh, when I was in Tokyo, there were vans <laughs> with loudspeakers that would just drive through popular tourist areas, uh, basically spreading nationalist propaganda. So these these are sentiments that are still very much in the forefront in Japan. And for some, it's a source of pride. For some, it's a source of embarrassment. So all these mixed emotions really kind of fed into not only the film itself but its production too so there's a lot uh there's a lot going on here for sure mm-hmm. we can move on i uh as opposed to the the second segment uh so the second segment being art and here we have mishima kind of getting his first look at success as an author so quite a few black and white segments in this part and we uh, again are seeing bits and pieces of of his last day throughout the film culminating in the last segment but the the most striking part of uh, segment 2 or, or chapter 2 is the depiction of scenes from his novel Kyoko's Place so here the main character is a young actor turned bodybuilder which also echoes Mishima's life where he decided to uh develop his physical attributes to to their peak and it's very interesting how his own life is echoed in his literary work uh so the point being in in the second segment that again it's this idea of of decay and the idea that art is something that really requires sacrifice uh and just the idea that real blood is a truer expression 
of of art in his mind rather than fake blood. And again, this is informing his his later decision to to commit suicide. So, any any thoughts on segment two? It certainly had a um, of the, of all the sequ- sequences within the film, or all the sections within the film. This one was the one that definitely made me understand. I think why Paul Schrader made this movie, because it very much fits in with his other work. Uh, if you're thinking of Taxi Driver, which he wrote, or American Gigolo, which he, I believe, wrote and directed. And then you're looking at so, uh, later work he did more recently, like Autofocus, uh, with uh, the story of Bob Crane. So this one gets into that sadomasochistic nature, which is a recurring element within Schrader's material. And so it very much felt like a Paul Schrader movie. In that section, more than any other section, I think. And it certainly was a, a visually rich, rich period, uh, piece. I, I really actually, of all of the depictions of the novels, that's the one I think I like the most. Uh, because it, I would say it probably felt a little less noticeably stylized. Uh, or at least its style seemed to make more sense within the structure of the film. You have the story of the uh, young man who becomes obsessed with his bodybuilding, just like Mishima himself had become, and winds up entering into this uh, relationship with a woman uh, who uh, is elderly, and he basically is brought in as kind of a sex slave uh, because of the financial debt uh, that had uh, existed in the family. So you see that uh, very perverse relationship done in a highly stylized way, almost like a film noir, uh, but in color. And it was a very, very rich cinematic experience watching that section. Uh, And I think it's at that point where I started to appreciate more the themes that were being developed, uh, maybe because I could make sense of it with the background and understanding Paul uh, Paul Schrader. But uh, it started to... uh, I felt like the story actually started to move and the the way in which he was constructing things made a little bit more sense at this point. Yeah, it's a very striking segment. I mean, the the stage sets are kind of this neon pink in, in a lot of the scenes. And there's some pretty impressive set changes, too, that take place and, and some pretty complicated lighting changes in, in those segments, too, that... Uh, Again, the artifice is front and center. You actually see the the rails on the ground where the, the set pieces are sliding in and out. And you know the film is not attempting to hide the fact that you know, this is a very artificial world. But I, I really appreciated the the creativity and just the the look of those segments. Um, but I the the fact that the film goes out of its way to really pull out those pieces from Mishima's written works that that reflect his own personal life and where he was at, at a given moment uh, really speaks to the ambition of the film again. And, and perhaps it's overly complicated, but I, I felt like there was real clarity kind of developing at this point in the film in terms of what Schrader was trying to do and, and his objectives. I think that's a fair point. It does seem like a, a certain purposefulness emerges in this maybe the first half hour 40 minutes or so is uh, uh not focused enough 
to be able to really be advancing a, a thematic purpose. Now there seems to be a purpose, uh, and we start to really build a momentum that then pays off in the second half of the film. Uh, so I do I think this was a, a certainly improvement upon the the beginning section of the film. Um, it it also has more I think uh, more of a, a a probing of the psyche of the person of Mishima. Now, granted, there's a part of me watching this whole movie that does wonder to what extent have I really learned anything about the historical person of Mishima. Uh, it's, I don't know if you saw the recent Steve Jobs movie directed by Danny Boyle and written by Aaron Sorkin. But as I watched that, I thought there's nothing here that makes me think I actually know the actual Steve Jobs. I think I just know this fictional version that they've created for this movie. And so that could be something of that with Mishima in terms of how this film is created. How much do I really have a sense of, of the man himself because he becomes, at this point, looking so much like a typical Paul Schrader protagonist, right? Whether that's going to be Travis Bickle or whether it's going to be Jake LaMotta, uh, it just sort of becomes much more, oh, okay, I, I recognize you. You're the type that Paul Schrader writes about. Certainly, there's a reason why Paul Schrader focused on it, because something in the historical person resonated with the in own interests of Paul Schrader as an artist, but how much am I really seeing Mishima or am I just seeing a fictionalized version of him here? That I can't really say, but it does start to come into focus of what I'm dealing with here in this section. I think that's one of the main points of the film is just this blending of, of fiction and reality but reality through the lens of, of Mishima, right? So he, in a way, his, at least the film suggests that his literary works are dramatizations of his own reality. And, and the film is, is definitely emphasizing that. Uh, so, you know, getting into chapter three, which is entitled Action, uh, we start to see this momentum building again. So Mishima realizes that beauty and art are nothing without action, without uh, without sacrifice. And the novel in this section uh, is entitled Runaway Horses. And it really is the most grounded and least visually ostentatious of the novel depictions. So it's very... Um, kind of black and white. It's very stark, and, and not black and white in terms of just the images being black and white, but the set designs are are very monochromatic, save for perhaps the 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 red circle of the Japanese flag in the the back of the kendo um, um, studio or, or practice space, I should say. And the story there depicts a group of youths that are looking to overthrow the forces of capitalism and restore the glory of the emperor. So uh, again, this is informing Mishima's own convictions and his own ambitions. But I, I found it interesting that, you know, this is supposedly later in Mishima's life, yet, you know, we his stories start with depictions of naivete and youth and then in the second chapter we get into more 
uh, more of a sense of maturity and it's more adolescence, right? And then in chapter three, it almost feels like a regression in some ways, right? You could say that he is being caught up in the idealism of youth again, maybe out of fear for the fact that he's aging or he's starting to decay. So he wants to uh, bring back those ambitious adolescent urges in an effort to maintain his youth. Uh, that's kind of how I saw it, I guess. And is that, you know, being foolish again? Is that being naive again? Or does he see the ambitions of youth as kind of the highest ideal to aspire to? And in one way, he must feel that way. Uh, or in one sense, he must feel that way because he surrounds himself in real life with youth, right? And he probably believes that surrounding himself with youth will keep him young. So he forms the shield society and he's training these young men as soldiers of the emperor. And, uh, this all culminates in, in the last segment. So any thoughts on, on chapter three action? Well, just as a preface to any thoughts, I have to say, this is a part where you kind of go, wow, this is a perfect example of stranger than fiction, right? In which, you realize Mishima himself had a private army yeah. to restore. <laughs> and you just kind of go, holy crap, I, I can't believe that really ever happened. <laughs> so, And uh, that was just this novelist that happened. It wasn't, oh, well, the uh, the governor or some, you know, no, it's a guy who writes plays and novels and has a private army and people that join into it. And you just nobody's really thinking, okay, the guy's nuts. You know? <laughs> so it's Yeah, it's he, he seemed to be go. celebrated for that. You know, he seemed to be... Again, I think it's that that idea of the glory days of the emperor is still very appealing in Japan mm -hmm. to many people, and right. they I guess saw that's him how... as just kind of a harmless, uh, harmless force that was maybe trying to inspire inspire some young people to have a sense of duty and honor, which they didn't see as necessarily a destructive thing. Right. I guess that's how I really read this scene. I don't know if I thought so much about him having a fear of growing old or a fear of dying or sort of a yearning for his own missed adolescence. I saw it more as a national desire for the a bygone era. And we, we all have that, right? Maybe this yeah. is more about a, a, a nostalgia that was trying to be actualized in a way that most people go, oh, remember when. But they don't actually then create an army to try to make the past era come back into existence. So that's actually what I meant earlier when I thought of this in terms of the age of Donald Trump and the celebrity politician. In a certain sense, everybody now is trying to go back to a previous era of some sort. Uh, Bernie Sanders would represent perhaps of wanting to return back to the rebellion of the 60s and the 70s and the college campuses at that time, right? Donald Trump is going back to I mean, America before globalization and the free trade really started to change our economy and our industry, right? So you have this sort of a, a effort by political will in the world right now to try to move things into a different era that's already passed and to try to recapture a certain uh, period of time. And that's what Mishima is trying to do. And Obviously, what I found very fitting about this, and, and particularly in the depiction of Runaway Horses, uh, the dramatization of it, is that the fanatics 
fail, right? The nationalists who are going to try to overthrow the government fail. Their leader commits seppuku, uh, which ultimately is what will happen to Mishima in real life as he comes to that day in November of 1970. But I did think, isn't that an interesting point that perhaps there is an awareness within Mishima that, yes, I may yearn for this, I may want this, I may want to rid Japan of the corrupting influences of the West, of capitalism, go back to a feudal state with the emperor, but you can never really go back. And I think I saw that as being maybe the most profound and thoughtful point in this movie because we all have some desire to go back, don't we, right? Uh, I want to go back to when things were just a little different. I want to go back to when I was a teenager and all I had to do was worry about some grades, playing a sport, whatever, you know, and that was, that was, I wish I could go back to that, that kind of glory day. And the fact is you can't, right? And it's any effort to do it winds up in your own self-destruction. And I thought that was a very touching uh, 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 and poignant uh, aspect of this particular movie. Yeah, it's a good lead into the last segment of Harmony of Pen and Sword. So we see that uh, that final day, right? And Mishima really does become kind of a tragic figure at the end. And he's giving this impassioned speech. And, and you really feel that he does believe these things. And he wants, as you said, he wants to bring the past back. Uh, because he feels that that is a better a better goal for people to aspire to, you know, he sees, you know, capitalism or he sees the desire to earn money or industry, I suppose, as, as kind of a, a metaphysical failure in that there's no aspiration to, uh, to greatness beyond oneself. It's only an aspiration to what, what can I obtain for myself? And it's kind of ironic because we see Mishima, you know, living in these palatial uh, settings in this palatial mansion before he leaves to to stage this coup. So, in a way, he's been captured by his own, by what he fears most, uh, you know, monetary success or uh, or impending uh, impending decay. But he becomes kind of this this figure that is pitied or at least by the audience at least i felt that he he you know he had become lost i mean his his whole reason for um creating this movement was being uh, he's being ridiculed for it and you could argue that this whole movement was really an effort to glorify himself. And I think in some sense that's true. Uh, but at the same time, I think the film wants us to, to see Mishima as someone that was aspiring to create a movement beyond himself, even though the trappings of his ego, uh, maybe made him less, made his ambitions less elevated, uh, than he would want them to be. Uh, what do you think? I guess what I would say on this last section, which I, I liked it a great deal, uh, when it actually goes through and sustains the, the events of November 25th, when he finally gets to the general's office and begins implementing his plan and has the address before the soldiers, 
the garrison is called out, right? And he is there to speak to them. And they begin to shout him down, basically saying, we don't want this. We're not going to do what you're saying. Uh, you, you see the patheticness, right? How pathetic his efforts really were yeah. and how much he had misread everything. Because uh, you get the sense he thought, I'm going to get up here, give this stirring speech. They're going to go to what I, I have called them to, this greatness that I have foreseen. And they just talk over him, yell at him. Uh, they clearly ignore what he is uh, trying to say, uh, even breaking the rules, because one of the key things was they were going to be staying silent, right, uh, during his speech. And they don't stay silent for very long. They immediately begin to reject him mm -hmm. uh, publicly in front of everybody. So it's obviously a very humiliating moment. And it's played very well. And I, it strikes me as... Uh, the, the, this is again a part of why oh okay having a western director having an American director really was telling for this movie because I don't know that a Japanese director would have the same sensibilities Americans and Europeans have in the post enlightenment uh, because of that intellectual tradition have this sort of self critical uh, weariness about them sometimes oftentimes uh, in too much abundance and to a point where it's actually harmful but it does have that sense of uh, an awareness of the failings of the ideology and this is something that i don't know that for the most part i mean there's some japanese work that does have that uh, maybe it's kind of examining some of the hypocritical nature of it but this one really gets the sense of you're sitting in this situation that was made possible by the very things you're attacking right so you can think of it being similar to maybe the way college students right now are going around on campuses uh, derailing American history and American institutions, not realizing that it's those exact same institutions that allow them to do these things right now, right, to have these protests. Uh, it's that it's several culture, centuries worth of culture that is giving them the, the ability to do this. And here we have Mishima. Well, if he didn't have a modernized Japan, he couldn't have had a private army to attempt to restore a feudal Japan, right? He would have been a nobody. He would have been a nothing. He would have been just a clog in the machine. He rises to this level of greatness because precisely Japan has become something different. And so that's where you see the ultimate kind of pathetic nature to this movie. Unfortunately, I think the movie at the very end contradicts its point. If its point is to show... I think it should be this point. Maybe this is just me having a disagreement with Schrader. But it should be to show the failings of ego, the failings of narcissism. And then when it comes to the actual seppuku, it doesn't show it, right? It glorifies it. And so it seems as though Mishima is a victor, right? He has at least obtained on his own terms his his glory, his preservation of himself in his peak form. He has fulfilled his code. Okay, I wasn't able to succeed in the coup, therefore I now commit uh, seppuku, and I have at least honored the Bushido code, right? I, I am a true samurai. I am the, the modern samurai. The problem is that isn't what happened historically, right? He, he does, yes, uh, disembowel himself. His number two couldn't bring himself to cut off his head, which is what was supposed to happen. He's supposed to be decapitated. Yep. And so it didn't go, even his own ritual suicide didn't actually go the way it was supposed to. 
And the movie doesn't show us that. Instead, gives the impression that he does succeed in his goal. And clearly he didn't, right? The men he had trained to go with him didn't follow through with what they were supposed to do and the way they're supposed to do it. And so I think the movie ultimately, by its depiction of the seppuku, ultimately reveals itself to maybe be intellectually dishonest. I think that's a fair assessment. I mean, again, the, the film is trying to be complicated and, and to a fault because it's trying to depict a complicated man. But I also think that Paul Schrader is more interested in, you know, delivering a cohesive whole, even if the reality of the events he's depicting does not or did not provide that for him. So, yeah, there is an artifice there that that maybe can be seen as dishonest. But I think, um, well, yeah, I think maybe Paul Schrader's choices are uh, further reinforcing the the trappings of of ego in art, and and so maybe in a sense the the choice he made is actually making the, the point of the film all the more. But I, I do understand what you're saying. If we're looking for a more uh, historically accurate depiction of, of what took place, you know, this is not the film to look at. Well, it's not even necessarily about historical accuracy because, I mean, even the decision to cut when they do isn't historically inaccurate per se, right? It's just not telling you everything in any depiction of any historical event can't get all of it in there. I mean, there's just no way to do it. Mm -hmm. And even in you know, a truly great, well-researched historical account in a novel or a, um, a just a nonfiction book, you're going to only be able to obtain a certain amount of information. You can't actually have a full omniscient view of a historical person, historical event, period, so forth. But it does strike me as that this movie is trying to talk about the complexity of the man and trying to, yes, in a very stylized, certainly not the typical biography at all by any stretch of the imagination. It's a very stylized telling. It's, it's ready to jump into fiction, nonfiction, and talk about the, especially in the life of an author, how these two might correspond to one another, their work in fiction being reflective of their own life and maybe even their work in fiction also determining some of the future moments of their life right how how those two might interplay with one another uh but to change that or to to sort of end the film with the seppuku the way it does i think ultimately takes away some of the uh, some of the actual thrust of showing the failures of this man and makes him into a kind of hero and I don't know that you can really look at Mishima's life and say that was a heroic life. Uh, certainly there's talent. He obviously did make a major impression upon Japan, but ultimately I don't know that you can look at this as heroic. And the movie sort of allows that to be the impression the audience takes away from it. And so it's, it's inaccurate, not just historically or as far as factual reporting, but it's inaccurate in terms of depicting truth. Yeah. I think we should talk about Phil Glass's score, which this is my favorite Phil Glass score, I have to say. I think it's fantastic. And I actually listened to the music before I saw the film. I, 
when I went through my period of listening to Philip Glass scores. And it's just an outstanding soundtrack. And I, I do think that it's it's the element that really helps all these different styles become a cohesive whole. And uh, it's a nice combination of string quartet with some more fully orchestrated elements and even some uh, electric guitar elements, which you don't hear from from uh, Philip Glass very often. So I thought we should definitely mention his contribution to the film, which is significant. I agree. I don't know if I'd say it's my favorite score of his. It's very good. Uh, usually Philip Glass is a little derivative. Uh, some of his work, it's very repetitive. You're just saying, okay, I've heard that theme now consistently for the entire you know past hour. This one has a, a lot more, I think, going on within it, a lot more thought. And it, you're right, it does do a great job of holding the whole film together. Because it's so disparate in its elements, uh, the music becomes extraordinarily important in terms of making it cohere and allowing us as an audience to absorb the tone and appreciate it. Uh, I think it's actually an example of where the music elevates the material uh, because it is really, truly a great score. And I also have to give credit, uh, I think, I don't know to what extent that this is just my reading into it or if this is actually true, but I get the sense that the way it was structured by Schrader and his crew in terms of the black and white for the flashbacks, the highly stylized for the depictions of the novels, and then the naturalistic... I see a lot of that having an influence on Oliver Stone and his work starting with JFK and going forward, right? His movies start having that splitting of color, black and white, flashback, mm-hmm. uh, and all that. So I, I do think that he had an impact on a particularly important director uh, in America uh, that then had its own reverb in American cinema throughout the 90s. So even though the movie didn't really, I mean, it, barely made anything at the box office and didn't have much of a reputation. I mean, it's loved by critics, but doesn't have a huge commercial reputation. I do think it has a certain influence that it has created for other movies. Um, again, maybe I'm just associating this two and they don't actually have a connection. But as I watched it, I thought, boy, I have a hard time thinking this didn't get into Oliver Stone's head somehow and start impacting the way he started making movies uh, when he went to make JFK. I'm kind of surprised this film isn't talked about more. I feel like it is kind of hidden in Paul Schrader's filmography. Uh, But there's really a lot to admire here and a lot to appreciate. Uh, Maybe the subject matter is too obscure for for a lot of people. Uh, But thankfully Criterion has maybe brought some more attention to it. Um, We should also mention just uh, as a curiosity that uh, George Lucas and... And Francis Ford Coppola, I think, were producers on this, uh, which is interesting, too. Yes, before everybody hated George Lucas. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I think this I is kind think... of the period where they were, uh, well, I, I think they had He just moved into Kurosawa. really producing. Yeah, he wasn't yeah, doing anything. Yeah, and, and they helped Kurosawa make uh, at least Kagemusha, right? Or was it Ron? Or maybe both. Uh, I want to say it was more Kagemusha. I don't think they had anything to do with Ron. I think it was Kagemusha. Yeah, yeah I think but. that's right. Yeah, no, it's it's a very solid... I mean, it's very much something that... If you're a Paul Schrader fan, you should see this movie because oh, yeah. it 
it fits in with his other stuff actually extremely well. And what I would say I did find interesting as, you know, looking at from the perspective of Paul Schrader, it very much hits this idea of preparation, right? All of his movies are really about a guy preparing for a big fight. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you have a lot of time in Taxi Driver where Travis Bickle's just sitting in his room, talking to the mirror, rehearsing in his head what he's going to say, what he's going to do, right? Psyching himself up for eventually this violent confrontation. Jake LaMotta, in uh, the, the, the script that is used for Raging Bull, spends a lot of time in the dressing room doing things like that, right? Getting ready for some kind of big final confrontation, right? And so you have that element here as well. Yep. Uh, the whole of the novels are treated like, okay, this is all Mishima preparing himself finally for the day in which he will go to be the soldier he maybe wanted to be but couldn't be during World War II. And so it is that very similar style of the man preparing himself for battle. And that element I do think works. I just think that it pulls the wrong note at the very end. Because it gives the sense that he won the battle, but I don't think he did. Yeah, I I would agree. I I think Schrader wants to have that kind of glorified note at the end of the film because the the film is very much a glorification in many ways but um yeah yeah you could say there's a misstep there for sure well we can talk about criterion's release of this film uh it was released it's only been released on dvd unfortunately there have been rumors that this will be upgraded to blu-ray soon because there is a um, fairly new restoration out there is my understanding, or at least within the past few years. And Filmstruck does have a nice high-definition uh, streaming version available. Uh, but I, I did finally cave and, and pick this up during the last Barnes & Noble sale, mostly because uh, I wanted to get in the supplemental material, partially for this podcast, but... Uh, just the fact that it's such a beautiful package, and I, I have a feeling that if the Blu-ray does come along, it's probably not going to be exactly the same in terms of the presentation. Uh, so this is a really nice digipack, uh, really beautifully decorated, uh, pretty much to to emulate more of the theatrical segments in the film. Uh, but you also have a very nice... Uh, to the set with a fairly thick booklet with a few essays and there's a bunch of extras on on the second disc Uh, a couple documentaries uh, there is a commentary with Paul Schrader and a new interview with John Nathan and Donald Ritchie Uh, so a lot to go through here and definitely worth picking up the uh, the DVD set even though it's not high def well, I uh, don't have the DVD. I just watched it on Filmstruck, and it's a very nice presentation if you're looking to watch it on Filmstruck. It uh, looks great, and it sounds very nice, too. Uh, I guess I uh, can't comment anything on the particular packaging or anything, but I'm curious, Matt, uh, did they have anything? Because I know the uh, obviously the edition that's on Filmstruck, anyway, uh, has Ken Ogata, who plays Mishima. It does a very good job. We didn't talk about the performance as much, but he does a very fine job in his role. Uh, he is the, doing the narrating in the version that uh, was on Filmstruck, but I also know there's a version where Roy Scheider, of all people, Chief Brody himself, 
uh, goes ahead and does the narration. Uh, I think that was the one that was done, the, the theatrical release in the U.S. Uh, back yeah. when it came out in 85. Uh, is that included or anything about that in the uh, DVD? Uh, I believe all the different narrations are included. I might be mistaken on that. I have to double check, but um, let me just take a look here quick. Uh, yeah, so it looks like the, the default um, is the original Japanese, uh, but it does have the the Roy Scheider voiceover. And it looks like... Yeah, so the third was with actor Paul Jasmine. And it sounds like that was potentially like a placeholder for Roy Scheider's narration. So it looks like uh, the those versions are available on the disc. All right. So cause I would be interested to see how does it work with those other narrations. Um, so I guess someday maybe I will have to pick up, if not uh, the DVD, then perhaps I'll wait to hold off and get the Blu-ray. So that's probably a good place to wrap up for this evening. So, Nate, does uh, Mishima belong in the Criterion Collection? I'm hesitant to give an answer. Um, it's a good movie. I, I mean, I know I have my qualms with it. There are things I don't like about it. Again, if I watch it more times, I think I'll probably appreciate it more. And maybe I would be a little less critical of some of the things that I have a problem with right now. But is it a movie deserving to be in the Criterion Collection? I think I'm going to say no. I, I'm going to say no. I don't know that it, while it's it's good, it's it's interesting, it maybe even has a tiny window in which it influenced Oliver Stone and his work later on, which then influenced other people. I just don't know that it has anything substantial uh, to contribute to cinema that would place it in the Criterion Collection. So no. I guess I disagree with you on this one. I, I think it's worth including. Uh, I do think that it has uh, quite a bit to say uh, in terms of how a biopic can be presented. I I would say it's Paul Schrader's, probably his best directorial effort, certainly his most conspicuous directorial effort. And I think without Criterion's involvement here, this film probably would have been more forgotten uh, than it maybe already is. So uh, I would say go ahead and include it. Well, thanks for listening this evening. Uh, our next podcast will be on the silent film, The Phantom Carriage. <laughs>